Hey, this is Pete Bauer from the Pete Bauer blog. As always, I want to thank you for joining us today. I have my daughter, Dorothea Bauer, our marketing guru for Sunlight Press, also with us. Today, we're going to talk about a couple of things like systems, writing systems, and marketing ideas and so forth. And and I know most people try to have podcasts consistently, like weekly. Ours are random. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the early phases of this whole process, and a lot of it is just writing. So we didn't want to have a podcast just to have a podcast. We wanted to have a podcast if we had something actually to say. And here we are. Excellent. We're so today by- should be awesome. Should be awesome. Probably won't be, though. So one of the things that I've been reading about as I've been researching writing and so forth is that writers should try to find their system. In other words, when they write well, what environment do they write well in? And then you try to, it's, it's about maximizing efficiency like any other business. And so I have a problem because my best writing time is 10 a.m. And I'm at work. So <laughs> that's, that's a problem. And it actually is frustrating because on the weekends, I will, I'm really good about writing, getting a lot of stuff done around 10 in the morning. When I'm at work, though, I have to wait. I either do it during lunch or I have to do it when I come home, which is outside of my prime writing time. So it's a little frustrating. I want to try to define exactly when I'm most efficient, but doing so hasn't really made me any more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's been a problem. Now you're aware of how inefficient you are, though. So there's that. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's where knowledge is really come in handy. Yeah. Every day at 10 at work, I'm like, awesome. I'm not writing. Anyway, it was an interesting thing. I'm still trying to figure out the best place to write and all the other aspects to it. But I was a little disappointed that my prime time was 10 a.m. And the other thing, too, is I am also a night person, usually. So recently, I took some days off to do some writing and effectively didn't write, which was a lot of fun. Wanted to, but couldn't because the story was having issues. Anyway, if I'm within five days, I don't slip into my normal mode, which is stay up to two or three in the morning. That's how I naturally work. Um, But I was at five days. So I had a lot of inspiration. Started writing at like 11 p.m. and and got done around two. And then I had to go to work. I had to get up at six. So the first couple of days that we kind of stunk. See, my best writing time, even though I'm not writing for Sunlight Press, my best writing time is around midnight, and I learned that when I was in college. So what I would try to do so I wouldn't procrastinate would be to close the blinds and shut the door and make the room as dark as possible to try and trick myself into thinking that it's midnight and I would put on white noise and do all this other stuff to kind of enter this tired state where apparently ideas flow more easily. Because I think that during the day, you're just so busy thinking about all of your obligations and everything you have to get done. And there's just so much that the creative juices don't exactly flow as easily. But when you're just about to fall asleep, you have that spark of inspiration, which is awful because then you don't get any sleep that night anyway. That's not the first time I've heard that. I've heard that writers often do some of their best thinking when they're in that pre-sleep mode because your brain has shut down all the worries of the day and then you can just focus on the story and It's kind of like in the morning where some people think of things in the showers because their brain hasn't really kicked into all the the issues that they deal with. So, And that's happened to me, too. There's nothing more frustrating than when you're about to go to bed and you're like, oh, crap, that's a really good idea. I do remember writing a screenplay once. It was like 2 in the morning. I had a really good idea, and I didn't want to write it. And I was literally laying on the floor, and my head was down into the carpet, except my hands were on the keyboard of the laptop in front of me, and I was just typing without looking 
and I was just trying to stay awake. The one thing I've learned, though, is you don't let inspiration go to waste because that moment of inspiration, you have like the whole thing in your head. But if you write down only the highlights and think you're going to capture all that information later, you never do. You only get the highlights. So if you have a moment of inspiration, you really have to take advantage of it. One tool that I actually have found very useful is one of those USB recorders that you can just record yourself late at night when you're still half asleep and then dump the files into your computer the next morning and listen to your ramblings. But you are right, those moments of inspiration don't come again. So you do have to take advantage of them. There was one time I was in school and I had this moment of inspiration. So I reached to my desk to get my recorder and then remembered I had a roommate so I couldn't just start talking randomly in the middle of the night. So I refused to open my eyes and I stumbled into the bathroom, recorded what I needed to say, all the different plot points and dialogue, and then stumbled back into the bed and then fell asleep. And listen to it the next morning. But I, did, I refused to open my eyes. I was like, I am not writing. I am tired. I am sleeping. This is going to happen. That moment of inspiration has so much clarity to it. You know what I mean? Like all the connecting pieces are just there. They're not even like maybe the main theme or the main idea you're trying to convey. But you see how it connects to everything else. And that's the stuff I lose if I don't write it down. If I just come up with an inspirational idea for a confrontation between two characters, I'll focus on that, but I'll lose how that ties to some of the subplots or some of the other characters if I don't take advantage of it right away. So, yeah, you, you just don't waste it. Seize that moment of inspiration. This inspirational message is brought to you by Sunlight Press. Thanks. Now, you said you're not writing for Sunlight Press, but you will be. I mean... Eventually, yeah. Yeah, you're not writing... I mean, you're doing some writing, but none of it's in novel form, so... And you have an idea that you're working on for Sunlight Press, so... I do have an idea. Yeah, pretty excited about it, actually. <laughs> now, it's funny because I'm I'm really good with plot, and you're really good with character. Mm -hmm. So we often come to each other for those areas of weakness, and it's... Well, we should probably clarify, though. You do write wonderful characters, just stories come to you in plot points. You think yeah. of what would be a cool story, and then everything else flows from that. Whereas I look at the characters and their character development and go, well, if you look at this character's arc, this really needs to happen for them to fulfill their growth, so this plot point needs to happen. Well, that's true. That's true, because you come up with plot, obviously, as well. But you're right. It's just our starting point is... Completely my, different. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny because you'll just come to me and be like, all right, I don't know what to do now. I don't know where the character should go because I've kind of exhausted this moment and I don't know what's next. And then I'll come to you going, all right, I need to get the character here. Right? So how, how would this character think about that? And then it's funny, through our conversations, we kind of figure it out. But together, we make a really good writer. You know what's really interesting, <laughs> though? Yeah. Because we both come from a film background. You always wanted to be a director as a mm -hmm. kid, even though you were an actor. You always wanted to be a director, and you could see how those moving pieces and all those different plot points came together to form one story. Right. And when I was a kid, I always wanted to be an actor, and I was very fascinated by characters and their history and where they went and their interactions. And so we really haven't changed at all. We've just no, that's a good point. changed I, mediums. Yeah, I've always looked at stuff that way. That's true. So that was a moment of brilliance on your part. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad we're recording. <laughs> There's so few of them. Yeah. So one of the other things that I've wanted to do is kind of figure out. So all of this has been like a nebulous sort of thing, right? Like, how are we going to put together all of these stories and, and, and these novellas and all that other stuff, which <laughs> is a completely different topic. But anyway, <laughs> what does it actually mean? Like from a production standpoint, if you're considering 
this is a business, then your books are your product and there's a production schedule like anything else that's created or manufactured where you have to create it, uh, maybe do research prep work ahead of time and then you do the actual work and then you release the book and, and that's where the marketing and all that comes in. So I did just a really, a really rough draft of the publishing schedule and I actually put it on my blog and it was interesting to me is so I had a five-year plan and even if this really aggressive plan happened, it would still take seven years. So that's writing every day for seven years. Um, anyone who says writing is easiest is, is, is a moron. It's so, so hard and taxing and um, demanding. I mean, it's worth it because you're creating something. But good Lord, I looked at that and I went, and that's a really good schedule. That's like if everything goes really well, that's seven years. And one of those pieces is marketing. And in my mind, you would release the book and then you do some marketing prior to the release of the book. But at the release of the book, you had three phases. So there was always something new. You would do a initial release phase, a follow-up phase, and then another follow-up phase. And then continue and repeat that every time you released a book. So even with marketing, it, it just stretched the whole process out from research to the end of the marketing phase. Each book has like a six or seven month life cycle. And that's if everything's going really well and you're releasing really quickly. Well, and we've had so many different marketing plans too, because the industry keeps changing, technology keeps changing. And literally a month ago, the methods that people use to market their books were different from what they are now. But there are a few lessons that I've learned recently that I think have more to do with strategy than they have to do with specific tactics. And when you focus on your marketing strategy, that really doesn't have to change once you find something that works for you. Right. So I've come across a few different articles and, and I'll mention a few of those tips. But to start off, there was one example that I really wanted to use to kind of highlight the things that I've learned recently. And that is the fact that YouTube is advertising on television. Hmm. YouTube has all of these different commercials where they're showing their most popular YouTube channels and they've got different clips from them, shows how many subscribers they have, all of this different information. But it's on television. And I think one of the reasons that has been so successful is because you don't have to go to your computer anymore to access YouTube. You can be watching a commercial and then check it out on your phone. Or even the new TVs, these smart TVs have YouTube apps, right? That you can actually watch it on your TV while you're watching something else on your TV. And the main lesson that I was able to pull from that was you need to know how your customers are interacting with products in general, all of them. You need to know how they interact with the buying process. Because once you know that information, then that's really not going to change very much because they're still going to interact in the same way regardless of the technology that is being used. So I came across one article that I found really helpful and it defined the customer's buying process in a few different steps. And the first step from that was problem recognition. So either your customer is going to find something lacking in their life, whether that's information, if you're a nonfiction writer or entertainment, if you're a fiction writer, they're going to find something lacking. So they're going to go out and search for it. And this particular article said that marketers are problem solvers. You know, you have to be the one to solve your customer's problem, whatever that is. Then they said they look for information. So they're going to either look for books in a bookstore or they're going to check out Amazon or they're going to ask their friends or check out social media, but they're going to look for something that fits what they're looking for. Then they're going to do what the author of this particular blog post called alternative evaluation, which is basically sampling. So they're going to check out a few different excerpts, maybe read something else that the author's written, but they're going to check out a few things for free before they 
to actually do it. Then they're going to decide whether they want to buy the product or not. And after that, they're going to do their own evaluation. So if they really love the book, they may write a review on Amazon.com. Or if they really hate the book, they'll probably tweet it to a million people. At the end of the day, the process of purchasing anything has stayed the same. They're still going to recognize a problem, whether you're an author or a carpenter or whatever your profession is, they're still going to do research. They're still going to want to try it out first, and then they're going to either purchase or not or make their decisions. So once we understood that, I think that opened up a lot of possibilities. Because when we're writing, you get so bogged down in all the little details like book covers and social media and campaigns and all this stuff, you kind of forget the most important thing, which is what is your customer doing? How well do you understand your customer? How well do you know your target audience? And the other lesson that I learned that I had already learned in college, but you don't really think about doing when you're by yourself and not part of an advertising agency, is that you have to create a campaign for each of your target segments. Mm. When you think about doing marketing on your own, it's really intimidating to think that you're going to have to create something for a bunch of different groups of people. When you're part of an agency, it's just part of your workday, and there are so many other people with responsibilities, and you're not shouldering all that by yourself. But when you're on your own, you're just like, I, you know, I, that's a lot of work and I don't want to do that. But it is really important because they're the people who are going to be making purchasing decisions. And if you want them to buy your book, you have to reach them where they are. Yeah. I mean, it's a business. I don't want to go into the whole Hachette Amazon discussion that's been talked about and blogged about. But the interesting thing I've gotten out of that whole discussion is a lot of the authors who are traditionally published, they like being traditionally published because they don't want to be anything but writers. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to be self-published, then you have to have a marketing campaign. Gosh, we talk, we probably had a million and one other marketing ideas or approaches or release cycles or something we've talked about over and over again. And we, depending on the day, we kind of think we know what we're going to do. And then we think about it a little bit later and go, I don't know, what what if we did this? And the interesting thing about it, like you could release... I don't know, all the books at once or one every three months or one every six months or whatever, whatever that is, they all have benefits, right, to either you or the product or letting it live long enough to, I mean, if, if you do it staggered, then you're you're allowing the audience to grow with each book and maybe have some anticipation with each release or you release it all at once and you're hoping that the people that like it will automatically consume the rest and so you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. So none of them are wrong per se, but each strategy, you just kind of have to weigh what is working really at the time because the consumer consumption model keeps changing. And when we first started looking at the seven-year plan, one of the concerns was that by the time the last books come out, some of our readers will have left our target demographic. They will have aged out. But the thing about that is, is you also have to know why readers are reading your books because there's a reason that a lot of adults read young adult novels and it's not because they're going through those formative years and they want to identify with someone. It may be for a completely different reason. The first time I picked up Harry Potter, it was because I was curious about the story. My friends had recommended it to me and then I just fell in love with the story and I wanted to read all of the books. That was the first time I read Harry Potter. I have read the books multiple times, and each time I go back for a different reason. Sometimes it's because I miss the characters. Sometimes it's because I miss living in that world of Harry Potter, that magical world. 
And sometimes it's because I want to feel like a kid again. And reading those books brings me back to my childhood. So acknowledge too that even if your readers change, even if they grow and age out of your target demographic, that doesn't mean that your stories don't have value to them. No, and that's true. Even the recent research shows that, was it 50%? Was that the number I heard? I think 50% of young adult readers are not young adults. I think I think it's at least 50%. It may be over that. Yeah. So, and again, I think what it comes down to is that if it's entertaining, people will read it. And because young adult is is popular, a lot of the better writers are in that space too, which makes these books more entertaining to read. So adults don't mind reading it. So I think that's part of it. But it's it's been interesting to me, all the different marketing choices and all the all the different decisions we've gone through. You know, uh, there's a part of me that says, well, yeah, if you release them all at once, that's the best way because you can, if someone's interested, then they can consume, 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 and consume, just like binge watching television or whatever. But I know that would be years from now for me to finish writing that. And I don't know what the marketplace is going to be like. You know, I don't know if if you're still going to be able to get 70% out of Kindle or or if things will change and not be as positive for an independent author and publisher. So that kind of drives me more to releasing them individually as soon as they're available with, within a schedule, but not waiting because, because things have been so fluid already that it, you know one of the things that could happen with this Hachette Amazon and all the other future negotiations with Amazon is let's say they all come to an agreement and suddenly we get 40% instead of 70 or there's a new technology that the traditional publishers have invested money with a company, and now that becomes the prime way that people consume books, and suddenly independent authors have a lot a lot more difficult time. I don't know if that's going to happen, but the point is this is a real sweet spot for independent authors right now, and I, I think we need to take advantage of it as soon as we can. One of the things that we talked about as far as strategy was kind of taking the the marketing approach and putting it into three basic categories. The first is validation. So especially with new books or new series or new authors, you want to be validated in some way. You want reviews from people reading your book, hopefully positive ones, or reviews from other industry professionals. You want some sort of validation piece. So if people stumble across your work, that they feel comfortable making that purchase. And part of that is longevity. That's why you hear so many times that independent authors say that it takes three or four books before the traction really starts to go because people know I can invest in this author or this series because I I know there's enough material that I'm not going to be disappointed. And if I really like the world, I can indulge in it. The second piece of, of marketing is awareness. The hardest part is having people find you when they're not looking for you. That was something that Conrath said on his blog. It's easier to get people to find you if you're telling them to look at you. The real success you'll have is when people find you when they're not looking for you because your book has been so well reviewed or has sold a lot of copy and is on some list or is referenced as, well, if you like this book, you'll also like this book. So that's the kind of thing that, again, just over time, having enough people purchase your books and so forth will get you that. So we want to do validation. We want to work on awareness. And the last part, all that is tied to growth. The well-known axiom is that if you you want to get a thousand true fans, and if you can get a thousand true fans that will consume whatever product that you create, then you can make a living off of that. And so all of this is trying to get that thousand true fans. And so all of our marketing stuff, that's the long-term goal is out of the thousand people that read the book, if we can get a hundred of them 
to be true fans, that's great. We still have 900 to go, and then the next marketing cycle, the next approach, or the next series or whatever is all about getting those 1,000 true fans. So that's kind of how we've structured our marketing approach is validation, awareness, and growth. So we've talked a lot about marketing, and a lot of self-publishing podcasts and blogs talk a lot about marketing. But one thing that is really important to consider when you are marketing is the research factor of that. And I'm not just talking about beta readers, though they are incredibly important. They are not the only research that you should be doing as an author. You really should be doing research for all of your marketing decisions. Now, again, you're not going to have the funding to do as much research as, say, an advertising agency or a public relations agency would be able to do. But you should be copy testing your book covers, you should be copy testing your titles, and a lot of the choices that you make. If you're going to put forth a certain kind of ad, get feedback on that before you put that out there. Don't just spend the money and then expect everything to work out. Because also, sometimes you are wrong. There was one author that we came across who wrote a nonfiction book, and I do not remember, unfortunately, what the title was exactly, but he hated it. He absolutely hated the title, and he wanted to go in a completely different direction, something that, if I recall correctly, was a bit more artistic, but everyone said, no, this is the title. This is the title that is going to work. And his book was really successful, so even though he, as an author, didn't like the title, it was what the title needed to be in order to sell. Yeah, it's kind of like you need editing to make sure, an objective view of your editing to make sure that your book is at its best. Well, you need an objective view of everything in this process. No one's an expert in everything, so you're going to want an objective view of, you can have inclinations and ideas, but at the end of the day, you want to make sure that it works at this time. Research is really important, and hopefully we'll come up with some really inventive ways that we can do it for low cost so that other writers can take advantage of that. That would be cool. The last thing I want to talk about is finding your voice, and I wrote a little bit about this on my blog, but I was writing the novella Lost and Found, and it wasn't until about halfway through that that the whole way that the Gabby Wells novels should sound and approach and style and mood, it it all just clicked. And as I was writing it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. It finally makes sense. This is how they should all be. And it was odd to me that it's taken, you know, two novels that we've since thrown away and scrapped and we'll start over and three novellas to get to the point where we kind of figure out what that means. Well, I think we always knew what it needed to be. We were just having a hard time getting to that point that the writing actually reflected what we were looking for. Yeah, I think the key was that I allowed myself to go darker and that made a lot more sense. So the the risks were higher, the stakes were higher. The interactions between characters was more intense. And so it just makes more sense. Now, the other thing that we decided to do, and I say we and it's it's me, uh, um, <laughs> was that after much discussion and uh, a, a lot of resistance <laughs> on my part, is that really all these novellas need to be novels. So now I guess I have to write 10 novels, which is, heck, yeah. It's a lot. So one of the things I was trying to do is, is we had the first novella, The Homecoming Incident, and then we were, I was trying to turn that into a darker thing. And it was really hard because... It's very comedic. It is funny and lighthearted, and it works exactly the way it's written. And so I tried to make it darker, and it, and it just didn't work. And the other thing that was really ticked me off, and this is the thing that, that screwed up my whole five days off, was that I really loved the way... 
I introduced the Gabby Wells character in the first official novel, Water and Blood. And then I realized, well, heck, if this novella is now the first official way we are introducing Gabby again as a novel, and I couldn't figure out a way how to reuse that in the Homecoming Incident the way I did in Water and Blood. So then I had to come up with a completely different way to reintroduce, or to introduce, I should say, Gabby Wells. And that drove me nuts. Unfortunately, you helped me. You came up with a good idea about what she was trying to achieve. And then I wrote the whole thing, and I wrote about two chapters worth. And it all is fine. I mean, it works, and it's dramatic and suspenseful and what have you. I just didn't like it. It was contradictory to the homecoming incident that I was trying to darken. And I didn't like the way that the characters were... Like, all the characters were truthful to who they are. I just didn't, I don't know, I just didn't like it is really, really what it comes down to. So I read it and I'm like, well, this is good. I don't want to use it. So my only other thought was, I was going through the stories we have out there, is I know what I can do. I can add a crap ton more work to my plate. That's what I can do. <laughs> so what I decided was to write a completely new first novel. But I think it's really great that we're preserving the homecoming incident. It's a really fun story. It's wonderful to get to see these characters in this story compared to the darker tones of the later books. Right. And I think it'll be a really great reward for fans someday in the future if we ever do release it to kind of see not only this process, but get a little bit of the story they never thought they would have a chance to read. Yeah, I, it was your idea, and I think it's a great one, is that at some point in our release cycle is that we'll offer this for free as a bonus for those fans that have signed up for our newsletter or whatever. We don't want to release it too early because for the same reason we added, if you followed our path at all, the same reason we are, were writing so many novellas was that the tone and, and mood from the homecoming incident didn't work with what was happening in Water and Blood. So we said, well, let's add some other novellas to kind of lead the audience toward the right mood and tone. We want to give it away as a bonus, as a reward, but we can't do it too early because so we don't want people to be to be confused as to what all the future stories are going to be about. It's almost like a work of fan fiction for a series that hasn't been written yet. I know. Yeah, that's that's that, a good way to. That's a good way to put that it. That the author wrote. Yeah, I was a fan of my own work. That sounds really, really horrendous. But sometimes when you're writing something, you want to keep living in that world. And as a writer, you think, well, what if the characters were in this situation before all this other stuff happens that happens in the series? And the homecoming incident was the outcome of that. And it's a really, I really enjoy that story. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, that was the hard part. Is is I just like the way it all worked. So, I mean, it's not perfect or anything. I just enjoy it. The best part in the worst way about it is that it's the one that you're completely confident in story-wise, the one that's done. You've been writing for such a long time and this one's done and it's ready to go and we can't release it for a few years. Yeah, that's neat. <laughs> this whole process has been nothing but neat, neat, neat. Yeah, and so the new first kickoff novel of the Gabby Wells series is As Yet Untitled, which is driving me nuts because <laughs> I always like to have it titled when I'm writing because somehow it helps me shade it to, to fit the title somehow. It, I don't know. It just I know when the title's right, 
and then I it helps me drive the story forward. So the fact that I don't have a title is kind of driving me nuts. Although I did figure out all the major plot points today. So now I just got to go chapter by chapter and outline in general what, what is supposed to occur. The thing I'm going to do, though, for my daughter, who has been so patient in all of these years of helping me through this process, is I'm not going to get her help at all. And I'm going to try to keep her as much in the dark as this is possible, because it would be the first Gabby Wells novel that you would read that you really don't know what's going to happen. Although sidebar, it's making it very difficult for me to plan marketing things for this first novel since I don't know what happens. Well, that's true, but but <laughs> I'm sure we'll have plenty of time between the time I finish the first draft that you read and we market that you'll be able to come up with something. We carpool sometimes and it makes those drives a lot more quiet <laughs> because usually all we're talking about is story, plot, character, or marketing. And now I can't tell you anything that's going on in my head. Well, and you never stop thinking about it either. We could talk about baseball, but you're or all something. consumed with Abby Wells. It's so I I wish I could multitask, <laughs> but I can't. All it's just it's sad. So because my daughter will just turn to me sometimes. I'll be you know in my own space, and she'll go, "What are you thinking about?" And and she knows what I'm thinking about. There's only one answer to that question, and that's Gabby Wells. And she goes, "I I know." Which has always been difficult brainstorming-wise because you are so single-focused when you're brainstorming, and I think in a completely different yes. way. I am all over the place. But at the end, I get to where I need to go. But I know, but it drives me nuts <laughs> because I'll be like, like on the drive home today, we're trying to figure out the title, even though you don't know what happens in it. I'm saying, well, let's just just help me brainstorm. It'll finally click in my my head, but I just need you to throw out ideas, and you'll throw out like two <laughs> and then you suddenly start going off on this tangent. And then suddenly for 10 minutes, we're talking about something else. And the whole time I'm like, focus, focus, focus. <laughs> and then we finally get back to it. But that's the way you work. And, and I work differently. But it's one of those times where you know, our brains are not wired the same in that, in that capacity. In that one capacity. Yes. Everything else, we're, we're very, very similar. So that's kind of where we are right now. Our marketing guru is doing some marketing research, and we're looking at different ways to to do what we got to do. We're looking into book cover design. We're looking into editing, and I'm just going to write a lot. And this is never going to end, really. This is actually purgatory for me, I think. I, maybe I died, and this is my time in purgatory is just writing a series that never ends or is released. That would be terrible. That would be. Well, Although in that scenario, you'd already be dead. So the series would never be released. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's awful. It's all an illusion. I said to you once, I said, it, it feels like I'm writing and the words are just draining down the tub. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's just flowing right down the drain and it never seems to, I'm never putting a plug in and letting the words pile up so I can release anything. I just keep writing and writing and writing. Oh, well. That's a depressing way to end it. Yeah, and this moment of inspiration <laughs> is brought to you by Sunlight Press. Yes, yes. Now that we have a very firm plan, and I guess I should use the word firm loosely because... Now that we have a plan... Well, we've had plans, but I, I, I think this is going to... I think this is pretty solid. I don't think this is going to change much other than market or, or new things that we find out, But but specifically to... Now that we know that we're going to have novels instead of novellas, we know how the word count is. We know what the stories of most of those. Well, actually, we know this. I know the stories of all of them. I just have to actually write them now 
and I and I shouldn't have any more massive rewrites, which is what I've been doing and, you know, trying to change novellas to novels, not other stuff. It's such a waste of time for me. And that's one thing I I hate is wasting my time. So I'm glad that we have a plan that I really feel like is a direct move from A to B. So I'm excited actually to get going. I just had to be patient with myself to make sure that I structure this new novel to be the most effective story I can come up with. And eat lunch every day at 10 a.m. And that's right. <laughs> why are you eating? You why are you eating lunch at 10 a.m.? Shh. I'm writing. Okay, so that's all the time we have. If you guys would like to contact us, please email contact us at sunlightpress.com or or leave a comment in the comment section. So thank you very much for joining us. We will have another podcast as soon as we do something. It's a mystery. <laughs> Thanks a lot, and we'll see you guys next time.